Welcome to the Superheroes Everyday Podcast. I'm Danny Horn. Thank you for joining us. Superheroes Everyday is a comedy blog about the history of superhero movies, starting with Superman the movie in 1978 and telling the story of how superhero blockbusters became the world's most efficient way to painlessly separate money from the public and then give it to entirely the wrong people. On the blog, I'm writing about the movies in release order, but here on the podcast, we'll be covering pivotal moments in superhero movie history, today addressing the macro disaster Marvel's Eternals. Now, I know you don't have the time or patience to hear about all of Eternals. Nobody does. So I'm using the Sid Field three-act structure to break up the episode. So this is Eternals Act 1, and then I'll be releasing Act 2 and Act 3 later on in the week. And now I want to introduce my guest. Back by popular demand, my good friend, Trevor Bolliger. Hey, Trevor. Hey, what's going on? Uh, this is your second time on the show. You were here last month. And I, uh, I think you let me off easy talking about one of my favorite X-Men movies. So I had to pay my dues and watch The Eternals, which is... Um, yes. I have lots of things to say. <laughs> Excellent. I'm sure you do. So the point of the podcast, as you mentioned before, is you want to talk about pivotal moments in superhero movie history. And so this is an interesting choice because... I think it's a very pivotal moment for Marvel Studios. Kind of running up against the limitations yeah, of the up, art form. How big can we go? How big is too big? Well, let's run the numbers and find out how big they got. Here's the, the top six movies in 2021 went like this. Number one, Spider-Man No Way Home, obviously. Number two, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Number three, Venom, Let There Be Carnage. Number four, Black Widow. Number five, F9, The Fast Saga. Number six, Eternals. Except for Fast 9, superhero movies, and specifically Marvel movies, completely owned this entire year. So Eternals did better at the box office than any other movie in 2021, except for the other Marvel movies in Fast 9. It made $165 million. And yet it was considered a disappointment because the entertainment industry has lost their minds. If this movie came out a decade before, $165 million is a success. I think that's actually how much X-Men First Class made, if I remember correctly. But now, we, like, you need to have half a bill for it to be even, like, you know, a party in the boardroom. Basically, the reviews tanked it. On Rotten Tomatoes, like, No Way Home and The Suicide Squad and Shang-Chi, they all got above 90%. Black Widow got 79%. Venom Let There Be Carnage was 59%. And then Eternals, 47%. So... A lot of people went to see Eternals. They just didn't like it very much. Before we get into it, I want to talk for a minute about where this concept comes from. Jack Kirby, one of the titans of the comic book pantheon. In the 1960s, working with Stan Lee, he co-created the Fantastic Four, the Hulk, the X-Men, the Avengers, Iron Man, and Thor. His bold style and deep understanding of graphic storytelling forever changed the way that blah, 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 like, and so on. Like That's how people talk when they talk about Kirby. I can't keep it up. It makes my nose tickle. But Kirby and Lee, they were amazing partners, created all of these famous characters. But in 1971, Jack got upset with Stan because he thought that Stan was taking too much credit for their joint work. And so during the 1970s, Kirby left and he tried twice, once at DC in 1979 and then back at Marvel again in 1976 to create a big, enduring, cosmic, mythological saga and both times, it was just a complete fucking failure. Now, there are Kirby fans who like everything that Jack Kirby did. And it is like, they're right. It's extraordinary work. But in 71, there were three New Gods titles at DC. They were all canceled after a year and a half. And then he went back to Marvel in 76. 
and created another big epic space god saga called the Eternals, and that also lasted for a year and a half. So a year and a half appears to be the maximum amount of patience that people have for Jack Kirby's cosmic material. And this is not really, it's hardly based on the book. Like from, I've read some of the issues, this movie is not faithful at all. Like it's like saying that it's not faithful is not even strong enough. Like it basically, it takes some character names and the basic concept of celestials and eternals and deviants. And otherwise there is absolutely no resemblance. The plot, the tone, the relationships, the themes, nothing. This is like a completely new story that just happens to call itself Eternals. And so that takes us into act one. In the beginning, Trevor. Here we are in the beginning. Yeah. So it's it's one of those. Anytime you begin with like a long ass crawl about space politics, like, you know, it's a rough ride. <laughs> if they start talking about trade routes, I am out. I actually appreciate an opening crawl because this movie is two hours and 40 minutes. And if they had dedicated this crawl to an additional 20 minutes, I... I... But they do. But they do. <laughs> they tell us this exposition several times and then explain to us why it's wrong. This movie is oddly repetitive in like all the wrong ways. Yeah. And they don't really double down on the stuff that's actually interesting. Right. Yes. No, it's just this. They just do the crawl again. Before the six singularities is the thing. And the dawn of creation came the celestials. And they say Arashem, the prime celestial, created the first sun and brought light into the universe. Really? Did he? Did he do this? Apparently he did this. Life began and thrived, all was in balance, blah, blah, blah. An unnatural species of predator emerged from deep space to feed on intelligent life, and they were known as deviants. And the universe was plunged into chaos. But they had unyielding faith in Arashem, until today. Trevor, there is a big, flat, black spaceship flying through the solar system. And inside that ship, there is a full crew complement of 10 blank, pretty people sitting there motionless. There is a yellow sphere that flies into one of their throats, and they all turn on. It is pretty obvious at this point that they are robots. But they do not realize that for about 7,000 years. So they all go to their places around the walls, and then magic golden pixies make them like fabulous new clothes while they're standing there. The eternal superpower is that they are able to generate their own CGI whenever they want it in the form of these magic yellow CGI pixies that come and do whatever, whatever they're supposed to be doing. I thought that Kevin Feige was the only one with that superpower. So it's nice that he shared it with others. <laughs> That's right. It is 5,000 BC in Mesopotamia, which is a good place for it. And there's a kid on the beach cutting open a fish and the Eternals are about to appear and start screwing up history. Now, I would like to point out that by 5000 BC, humans already have clothing and beads and funerals and shoes. We've got rope and pottery and alcohol and leather. We can kill predators. We can take care of our families. Humans are doing fine in the big five. This is going to be a thing for me. The Eternals all say that they're superior to humans and they helped us during our development. And I do not understand the criteria that they are using to make those statements. And I just, I hate it when fictional losers like this come along and try to take credit for shit that we invented. It's insulting. I'm not a space robot, so I, I don't have my own space robot ego to, to stroke. But mm -hmm. yeah, it just seems kind of like they were given a job to do, that they're going to find some busy work. That they got to do something just to prove that they're, you know, a valuable part of the team. <laughs> right. Mesopotamia, fish kid. Somebody yells, it's coming, run. And then the kid's dad instantly gets eaten by a giant water dragon. And then there's another big dinosaur looking thing that comes. And it's going to eat the kid. 
What do you what do you think about the deviants? Honestly, at this point, the movie seems like it's actually going to be pretty cool. Yeah. You've piqued my curiosity. It's <laughs> yours to lose. And spoiler alert, they lose it. I think the deviants are like super interesting looking. They're weird. And I don't think they really look like they're made up. They're made up of these colorful fibers, I guess. And they just don't look like anything else. It's also very, very beautiful. Like the, yeah. the colors they use. If this movie does one thing right, it's like the cinematography. It's a gorgeous mm -hmm. movie to look at. Yes. Here's the Eternals arriving from the sky, landing on this beach, and they can do different stuff. One of them can fly and shoot laser beams from his eyes. There's one that's really fast and saves the kid from getting chomped. They've all got like their little C magic CGI powers. One of them shoots little fireballs and one of them can make a sword. The art design is, is like you said, like really, really beautiful. Like everything is like bronze and cream and blue and gold. There's lots of little detail and tracery on everything. And so they take care of the monsters. And then the big black spaceship appears in the sky, like the 2001 monolith, but sideways. And then guess what? More rich people come out of it, merge from the spaceship, just land there. And they look around like they have just made a down payment and they're looking things over. Now, naturally, the indigenous are worried as they should be. The indigenous should always be on the alert. And they start approaching with spears. And then one of the fancy rich people uses his fucking mind control powers to pacify them, which is gross and awful. And it is coded in the movie as kindness, as opposed to rape, which is what it is. Yeah. I mean, we talked about X-Men First Class, which has I know. Professor X. And like he does that so many times and it's yes. not okay. This is our second mind rape movie in a row. Like, what is Trevor? What is the matter with movies? I mean, I have lots of questions about like why these 10 Eternals, like why this set of powers, some of them, some of the powers are obvious, like the Superman one, Icarus. Like, yeah. yeah, you can fly and shoot lasers out of your eyes. That's perfect for when you're battling robot yeah. dinosaurs. But the one who can like create visions or the one who can, yeah, they're not uh, as do helpful. mind control. It, it's very confusing. But if you, if your whole goal is just kill the deviants then being able to do mind control on humans is not helpful at all. I don't know why he's there. Yeah, we know that their job is to foster humanity. And so there's like a dotted line between what he can do. Druig? Druig. Druid. Druig. Very dotted, very loopy dotted line. Yeah. You know, in, in the comic, Druig is officially an evil character because that's a thing that you do in comics. This movie does not label people like that because basically just they're all evil. And the only question is just like, which one of them are like more nice than the other? You feel like getting into the long overdue national conversation about race? Let's do that. Let's get into it. This is the right podcast to talk about it. It really is. All of Kirby's original Eternals were white. Fastos was black uh, in the comics, but he's not one of the original characters. He was created for the sequel series in 1985 by somebody else. So the original Eternals, it was an all white series of gods as per usual. For this film, six out of the 10 Eternals are people of color, which is awesome. So it's unfortunate that the whole concept derives from white supremacist ideology. In 1968, insane crackpot Eric von Donneken wrote an insane crackpot book called Chariots of the Gods, Unsolved Mysteries of the Past. It was immensely popular in the 1970s. And unfortunately, these ideas are still with us today. The idea is that ancient aliens from a superior civilization visited Earth in the past and hung out with all of our inferior civilizations, which is all that we had back then. And the aliens 
were responsible for all of humanity's most impressive and mysterious achievements, like the pyramids and Stonehenge, the Moai on Easter Island, the Nazca Lines in Peru, and the primitive Earth people saw these aliens as gods and then turned them into mythology. At its core, this is basically a white supremacist ideology that says that any human achievement that we can't credit to a specific white man must have been copied from somebody else. Because the black and brown people who lived in the past were too stupid and inferior to come up with anything smart all by themselves. So there must have been white people from outer space who came and did stuff for them. So the movie uses multiracial casting and puts a black character particularly in charge of inventing stuff, which makes it less openly racist. But it's still saying that people of the past were stupid and they needed colonial overlords to come in and just hand them discoveries and inventions. So... Yeah, I was expecting a kind of a, a lighthearted conversation about uh, silly aliens coming to a planet, but I don't know. No, right. I, come, I, mean, I come to play. You know that. Yeah. All right. Now it's present day London. There is Cersei. She's out on the streets taking a picture of a billboard that shows something that she made back in Mesopotamia. She's dressed like a modern person. She's taking a picture with her phone. And then she goes and she realizes she's, she's late and she goes and runs for the metro. I think this is actually very effective. It's a nice scene. So Cersei, she's going to the Natural History Museum. And she works there as the museum scientist, whatever that is for a natural history museum. And as she's going up the stairs, there's a Charles Darwin statue. And she whispers to it, I know I'm late, Charlie, which is very cute, mm -hmm. but super annoying. Because as we will see, this movie is anti-Darwin. They say the word evolution a lot, but this is intelligent design watchmaker bullshit. Cersei's supposed to be teaching this class of giggling schoolgirls, but she's late. And there is Kit Harrington in lecturing in her place. And he is he is just terrific. I didn't watch Game of Thrones, so I've only been vaguely aware of Kit Harrington. But thanks to this movie, I love him now. I mean, it's just what this movie needed. More gorgeous people. <laughs> yes. Game of Thrones, not a perfect show. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest sins that show did was it did not let Kit Harrington smile ever really and oh he's so good at it yeah they, he's got a great smile and they really show it off in this movie yeah they do he's gorgeous and he's funny and he's really precise like he has fantastic timing he is a joy to look at and to listen to and if only he could be a character in this movie <laughs> i might be happy but cersei is lovely as well so she's Gemma chan from crazy rich asians and both of them are just like gorgeous movie stars and really just you, I could watch I could watch Gemma Chan all day long. Yeah, I at times I waffle with her being like the most boring out of all of them. <laughs> I think she's supposed to be this, you know, the straight person to all of the other like. Yeah, she's the more like behavior. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's a like at its heart, like her and Kit Harrington, like that's a grounded movie right there. That's something it would have been there's yeah. some, something compelling there. Yeah. And it's nice. And the movie is starting with out of the Eternals. I think that she is she is boring, but she's the most appealing character. And giving mm -hmm. us a, mm -hmm. a couple minutes to get to know her and her powers and her life is a, is a smart move, getting us started. And then there's fun music, and we are in a nightclub. And Gemma Chan is there, and she is dancing with Kit Harrington, and they are adorable together. There's also a random dude at the bar who's flirting with a young woman. Touches her hand. It turns kind of like CGI eternally. And she excuses herself, goes out into the hall, where she changes back into a little girl. This is Sprite, who is unfortunately, in this movie. Sprite looks like a girl who's about 15 years old, but she's actually an eternal, like the rest of them. 
She can create visual illusions and she's a moody teenager who resents the fact that she's stuck as a little girl and she is terrible. She has had 7,000 years to come up with a way to have a satisfying existence on this earth. And she has not used that time productively at all. In a movie with so many characters and most of them having like good substantial actors or actresses behind them. Then there's Sprite. Then there's Sprite. And I understand that it's like you need to find a child actor, but the combination of just the whiny brat writing and the whiny brat performance just really is just off-putting the entire movie. She can go. She's the first one who can go. Yep. Should have cut it down to nine. I've got I've got a few and she's the she's the first one on the list that that we could lose very easily. Yep. But there's super nice stuff between Cersei and Dane, Kit Harrington. They spent a lot of time with Dane early on, which is absolutely merited. And it is heartbreaking that in 10 minutes, they're going to just write him out of the film and forget all about him. Super cute scene. He wants her to move in with him. And she says that she can't. And he says, I think I know why. And then he asks, are you a wizard? Like Doctor Strange, which is the cutest question. He's noticed that weird things happen when she's around. It's This could have been an actual... This It feels like it's just a waste of natural resources to lose this dude. But Sprite, who's super annoying, she wants to leave the bar. Now we're walking home. Big scary deviant comes out of the water. So here's this big tentacly alien looking scary thing who comes and, and roars at them. And they're very surprised to see it. And Cersei uses her powers to kind of trap it in the sidewalk for a minute. And then the three of them are running away. Cersei and Sprite are not winning. They have interesting powers, but they are not very monster killy type powers. And then something smashes the Deviant through a wall. And we see laser beam eyes. And it is Icarus, who is Richard Madden. Richard Madden just swaggers up and he says, evening, ladies. And he is just like effortlessly sexy. Richard Madden, I'll say this. When Richard Madden looks in the mirror, he sees Henry Cavill. (laughs) He is not as hot as Henry Cavill, but he thinks that he is. And he is such a good actor that he can make you believe it, too. And that is what he is doing here. But I just find his character to be so dreadfully dull. I think it might be one of the most dull characters in the MCU. And Jeremy Renner is in the MCU. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a hard that's a hard record to beat. You are right. There's a bunch of people standing around in the middle of the road, as well as a giant monster. But here comes this red London bus just speeding down the street like it's totally clear. The bus runs into the monster and it flips over. And it's going to crash on top, improbably, going to crash on top of our heroes. And then Cersei reaches out and she touches it. And the bus instantly explodes into rose petals, which fall to the ground in a big heap. And this is a great image. This was a thing. When I was watching the movie the first time, I was like, oh, maybe this movie is going to be really good because it's so beautiful. It's confusing. And it takes a minute for you to realize that the bus driver is still alive. And they do not establish that there were no people in the bus. So it it takes a sec for you to realize she didn't just murder a whole bus. I was worried about that. But it's just, it's beautiful. And I lo- it's one, that's one of the best things in the movie, I think. There's more deviant stuff. And Icarus fights it with his laser vision and it heals itself and then it runs away. And who even cares about deviants? And Dane looks at Icarus and realizes that he is the ex-boyfriend and she really is a wizard. So Cersei and Dan have a sad little conversation where she does the exposition all over again. And then he asks one of the big questions that the audience is asking, which is, if you have all this power and you've been here all along, why didn't you fight Thanos or stop any wars? And she says, well, we were told not to interfere unless deviants were involved. Also, kind of we're losers and we can't really do anything. 
It's just the most insulting answer. It's just, yeah, you've got these awesome powers. It's just the most like selfish, like, no, we, we could have, but we didn't want to. I don't know, though. Like, how do you stop a war with laser eye vision and turning a bus into rose petals? Like, it's hard to scale that up all the way to stopping a war. There's a very big spectrum between coddling and allowing cosmic genocide. And they just <laughs> right. sat back and let Thanos do utter genocide across the entire universe. Yeah, not our problem. And then we give Kit Harrington a hug. And then he's gone. And the movie gets worse. At Home with the Eternals, Icarus and Cersei and Sprite are talking about the earthquake. They're talking about the deviants showing up. I think Icarus is the embodiment of this movie because he is real pretty to look at. And when he decides for a minute that he wants to be appealing, he can muster up the energy and do it. But most of the time, he's just distant and hard to connect to. And he has terrible ideas. And at the end, he turns out to be a complete psychopath. And that is Eternals. It is pretty. It is sporadically appealing. And ultimately, it is mentally unwell. Icarus kind of like just takes charge of their little peer group. And they decide that they got to get the whole band back together. And so they decide to go see Ajax first. Babylon, 575. Hey, hey, Trevor, guess what? We're back in the past. Here we are in 575 BC Babylon for another old-timey deviant fight where there's a bunch of Eternals like just outside the walls of Babylon and they're fighting big like spider monsters and stuff. And there's Ajax, who is Selma Hayek, using her little sphere glowing throat mic to talk to a celestial. And here's where we see a celestial for the first time. His name is Arishem. He's kind of like Charlie from Charlie's Angels. He only speaks through Ajax. Arishem is an enormous stone tower with round lights on it and a cartoon robot voice. Ajax, she's bringing a complaint. She's putting something in the suggestion box where she's saying she likes Earth. And she says, I respect your grand design, but there's something special about these people. And maybe this time the cost is too high. And Arishem says, do not become attached to this planet. You must focus on the true purpose of your mission. This ultimately is a movie about hating your job and kind of hating your boss. (laughs) Yes, it is. And, you know, it always sucks to have an impromptu call with your boss on a Zoom call. And it turns out if you're an eternal, same thing happens. Yeah. And she says that she trusts his vision for this planet, this terrible boss. And I think that the film is thinking that we're going to trust it too, which is odd because he's a big stone robot and he's not actually God. You know, you say you say that you want MCU movies to be more different from each other, and then they do this, and you realize, oh, it was better the regular way. All right, we see Fastos inventing things. This is Paperboy from Atlanta. I love Atlanta. It's one of my favorite comedies. And he's very good in this. And he, yeah, he, like, when they allow him to actually, like, shine, he yeah. shines so bright. He's great. And so seeing him as, like, a completely different character and super fun, I just, it's it's a real delight for the movie. Fastos is the one who's responsible for technology. And so unfortunately, I do have a problem with what he does. So he has this new idea for a steam engine, and he's very excited. I do think that the graphics that are around this are really cute. Like he kind of like waves his hands around and stuff kind of comes together and makes objects. So he's super fun as an actor. The CGI is really fun. The idea is idiotic, and it is one of the major things that bothers me. I brought it up already. But like they say that like people aren't ready for a steam engine yet because we're going to need to get some white people together before we invent the steam engine. So instead, he changes it into a plow. And I just hate when asshole aliens take credit for our shit. Then we see Sprite's World of Color. 
Sprite is doing like a Disneyland electrical parade fireworks show talking about Gilgamesh and Enkidu entertaining everybody in 575 BC. And then there's the scene of it's kind of like this party, this post, I guess, post killing deviants party. And so we see some more of the Eternals and we get to know them a little bit, sort of vaguely interacting near some humans. So here's where we meet Makari and Druig, who are both terrible. Well, they don't really give Makari an opportunity to do really anything in the movie. But yeah, yeah. I guess ter- ter- terrible is their default setting. Makari. So this is the thing I think immediately that makes Makari terrible. She's deaf. She's a deaf actress, and that is great. And for, like, inclusion of of people with disabilities in movies, that is fantastic. I don't understand what being deaf means in this context, though, because Druig explains that she can sense tiny vibrations in the air, including people's voices when they speak. So in what way is she? How is she deaf? It's the same thing that they do with Daredevil, where he's blind, but not really blind because he can echolocate. Yeah, it just, it doesn't make any sense. So that's the immediate reason why she's terrible. And then there's Druig, who we've discussed, his entirely creepy power is that he can take over human minds. And then you see people's eyeballs go white like zombies when he does it. It is awful. And it just, it never gets better. You know what this is? This is space robot succession. They are all very wealthy. (laughs) They're all very out of touch. And they just don't know how to actually interact with average humans. And this is the thing about Cersei. So we see people doing the indigenous folk dance and Cersei is in the middle of it, like laughing and pretending that she knows how to do this dance. And it's just like she's slumming with the pores. And so over the next like scene, we see Cersei like irrigating some crops and she does a little cooking and like Icarus is there and he tries a little too. And they're basically treating this culture as a cooking class. It's like a backdrop for their date. And then they just get bored (laughs) and they walk away. This is a problem for me. Cersei is the one who's supposed to be deeply connected to the humans because she's the one who likes us and sees value in us. But the way that they express that in the movie is so Airbnb. Like she's clearly just a tourist who's just walking around, like finding everything quaint and picturesque. If they want to show us that Cersei is connected to the people, then the scene should be she's talking to somebody and she knows like a lot of different people's names. Like we should see that. And instead, it feels like she's just stopping by to smile at the peasants. And then, and then, Cersei and Icarus wander off on their own. And he tells her, you are very beautiful. And I am yours, Cersei, if you'll have me. And now we have pretty people kissing, which is very nice. But then they start having sex outside, like in the sand. So there must be people around. I didn't put that together. I kind of assumed that this was another time jump that, you know, maybe they're back in... The, it's, the I mean, that is, penthouse, but it is possible that that's what's intended. But it looked to me like they walked to the dunes and then they just started boning. And it's like the people, they don't have video games or Disney Plus. They get their entertainment the old fashioned way, namely watching beautiful, rich people have sex 10 steps outside your village. It's the least disrespectful thing that they do throughout pretty much the whole movie. So, it you know, it could be worse. 400 AD, the Gupta Empire. We see Cersei and Icarus getting married, and they're getting married according to a random ritual from somebody else's culture. And this, for me, really brings home that these characters do not have cultural traditions of their own. They are just parasites on our world. No, this is just an Instagram filter for them. And by <laughs> yes, the way, all of Earth, all all of civilization, yeah, is just Instagram filter. And now we're at Ajax Place. This is present day South Dakota. We are back. We have returned to the story. Cersei and Sprite and Icarus 
drive up to the house, which is spooky and dark, and Selma Hayek is not there. And they're looking around, and then Cersei finds Ajax's body lying on the ground, and she is dead. I mean, to be fair, happening across a dead body is actually the most exciting thing that can happen to you in South Dakota. (laughs) Well, okay, so then they got that happening, and they start to cry, and Icarus says that it was a deviant. And they are just sad for a little while, which makes sense. There's some haunted electricity, and the little yellow dongle floats out of Ajax's throat, and it just like snaps right into Cersei's. And now she's the one standing in front of Arishem. So now she can talk to him. And he says, Cersei, it is almost time. And then she comes out of it, and that's it. That's her whole Arishem experience. And now she's the chosen one. Do you think that this is a promotion in job title or promotion in <laughs> responsibilities only? It is all responsibility. She gets no benefit from this. <laughs> no, no pay all. bump. Nope. No extra time off. Nope. She doesn't even get a lesson in how to contact him when she wants to. At this point, that was it. She got Cersei, it is almost time. And that was the entirety of her onboarding. You know where we ought to go? Tenochtitlan. 1521, the Aztec Empire, or I should say the uh, the end of the Aztec Empire. It looks like pretty much last night for Tenochtitlan because the Spanish are there and they are slaughtering everyone. And they're just kind of like squabbling. Like there's genocide that's going on. Like, I don't know, 100 yards away. <laughs> there's like looting and burning and screaming. And then here's all the, the Eternals like standing in a little knot squabbling with each other. Druig's not happy. And Ajax, uh, is telling us not to interfere in their wars. It's just a double standard of they can take credit for all of their advancements, but they're not going to you know, yeah. interfere when things go horribly awry. And Druk says maybe it wasn't such a good idea helping them advance. And Fasto says technology is a part of their evolutionary process. It's not exactly something I can stop. And I'm like, you have to stop saying the word evolution. You don't understand what that means. And I need you to stop saying it. And then there's Mad Weary. This is when we establish Mad Weary. Thena is there. Thena is Angelina Jolie. We have not really paid attention to her besides knowing that she's Angelina Jolie. I'm surprised that she's in this movie every time she pops up on screen. No. Her eyes, her eyes go all yellow, and suddenly she is attacking her own friends. She she's the one who can create like swords and shields and stuff out of this yellow CGI. And she starts injuring people. And Ajax tries to stop her with her own magic, and that doesn't work. And now they fight, and then Gilgamesh has his like CGI fists and he knocks her out and then they discuss Mad Weary. So they they say, it sounds to me like Mad Weary. That's how I hear it. It is actually two words. And I looked it up and I can tell you how it's actually spelled. It has an apostrophe in the middle of it. It wouldn't improve your life significantly for me to tell you, no. so I'm not going to bother. It makes sense that it sounds like Mad Weary because it makes the characters mad and it makes me feel weary. <laughs> and I'm And I'm feeling it coming on. Athena wakes up and they explain to her she attacked her friends and wounded people. You've got mad weary. Your mind is fracturing. And Ajax, Ajax says, all I can do is erase you so that you can start over. I'll take you back to the ship and erase your memory. And this is, I believe, this is the, the scene. This is the sequence where they're trying to show us what Ajax's value was, like why we should care about Ajax and the fact that she just died. And Thena says, like, no, I don't want you to, no, I don't want you to erase my memories and my personality. And Ajax acts like it's no big deal. She's like, listen, it, she actually says, it doesn't matter if you don't remember because you'll still be Thena. 
deep inside. I think Selma Hayek has been waiting all movie to give a space lobotomy. It does actually feel like she's really into it. She's a little too enthusiastic about it. Yeah, so not only does she have, like, Arishem as the CEO, the terrible CEO, Ajak is, like, the fucking worst middle manager I've ever seen. So Druig's upset. He's like, I'm done with this. He decides that he's going to use his mind control powers to just cast a spell on all of the Aztec Empire, the Aztecs and the Spanish. He just walks down the pyramid steps to his conquered people. And that, Trevor, that is why the Aztec Empire still exists. Ah, congratulations to Druig. <laughs> he makes a decision and he, you know, he realizes this job sucks. I'm going to go like, <laughs> spin off my own thing. That is true. It's bad for the world, but yeah, but yeah, no, you're right. He's, he's actually, he's the one, he's the one character who's actually like makes a decision that all of this, all this y'all, this is bullshit. I'm gonna go do something else. They're still worried about Thena and Gilgamesh says that he'll take care of her. So they don't have to erase her. This mad weary thing is possibly the stupidest moral choice ever made by idiot characters in a feature film. Like this is just entirely made up nonsense that they are very serious and emotive about. They spend a lot of time on it and it has nothing to do with the rest of the movie. It's like this little polyp of boring storyline that just kind of like sits on top of the movie. Thena is the worst. She's just a speed bump in this movie. Yeah, it feels very weird to say this about an Angelina Jolie character because she's arguably one of the highest paid in the movie. Yeah. Like this movie would have been the exact same without her in it. It would have been better. But yeah, no, she offers very little positive entertainment value. For the audience, if I could cut one Eternal from the film, I mean, it would be Sprite, but like the second one would be Thena. <laughs> so Ajak, Ajak, Ajak suddenly just decides, you know what? Fuck it. You're all fired. And she just tells them all to leave. She says, like, we've, you know what? We've killed all the deviants. Go and make your own lives. And Icarus objects. And he's like, wait, no, but we're a team. We should stay together. And Ajak says, Icarus, remember your place. Do not question me. And I'm like, what the? F- I, I cannot tell what we're supposed to think about Ajax. No, she's terrible. And then she says, this is where we say goodbye. And they do it like this is this big kind of romantic, everyone comes together kind of moment. You are free to go. I want you to go out there. It's so inspiring. And live a life for yourselves, not as soldiers, not with the purpose you were given. Find your own purpose, says Ajax. And one day when we see each other again, I want you to tell me what you found. And then she goes and lives in South Dakota for another 400 years and gets killed. All right. So now we're in Tenochtitlan. No, I'm just kidding. Present day Mumbai. All right. Welcome to welcome to the present day, Trevor. It's, you know, it's hard to, you know, be more exciting than South Dakota, but present day Mumbai (laughs) actually really fits the build. Because we're here in the middle of a Bollywood movie, which is very exciting. And Kumail Nanjiani. As Kingo, an Eternal who is a Hollywood star and the funny one. It is beautiful that kind of in the middle of this movie, especially at a point where, as we've just been describing, it hasn't, it's been kind of annoying. Like all of a sudden turning into a a musical number is absolutely the correct answer. And well done, Eternals. You get a point for that for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I love this whole scene. Not just because it's like actually like an injection of color and fun in life. Yeah. But also because we meet the most important character in the whole movie. Yes. Okay. So we'll get to that in a second. Because uh, that's not that's not Kingo, I assume. No, no, no. Yeah. All right. We'll get to him. So just Kingo for a second. Like he's Kumail Nanjiani, very talented, not actually a dancer and does his best kind of doing kind of like Bollywood light 
kind of thing. They don't they don't have him do anything like too tricky, but he does. But he does. It's fine. But this is where his body comes into play, where the the Kumail Nanjiani arms get activated. And I just think it's so funny. He posted a picture on Instagram before, like while he's working on the movie, where he's just like incredibly cut and vascular and all that stuff. And he wrote, and I'd love that he just wrote this down. I found out a year ago that I was going to be in Eternals and I decided I wanted to transform how I looked. I wouldn't have been able to do this if I didn't have a full year with the best trainers and nutritionists paid for by the biggest studio in the world. I'm glad I look like this, but I also understand why I never did before. It would have been impossible without these resources and time. And I love that because that is he's saying the quiet part out loud, which is like intentionally, which I love. We're saying like this is completely unrealistic. And I got Marvel Studios to pay for me to do this. But he is the poster boy for the Marvel Studios Human Livestock Program. <laughs> he looks great. He does. Yeah, I mean, that poor soul, he didn't eat a single flavor for an entire year. If you, But if you had those nutritionists working with you, they figure out how to make that work. Then uh, musical number ends. Tell me about your favorite character. Oh, Karun? Yes, yeah, the real hero of the movie because he injects this movie with so much needed levity. Yeah, he's the only other human who has like a real part in the movie. And he's so funny and he's fantastic. He has really good timing. He has a really sincere character and it really it feels like he has real heart. And that's exactly what he brings to this movie because it's kind of soulless. Like the Eternals are kind of soulless. But yeah, Karun comes in and he just like gives this movie a nice warm hug and a smile and you know, he's good at his job. Yeah. And he loves his job. And like, I love him for it. So the first thing that we see is, is he's saying like, he sees Sprite and Cersei and Icarus. And he's like, I am honored to be in the presence of the great Eternals. And they're really, and they're surprised that he knows who they are. And when Kingo comes off stage and, and talks to them, he's like, oh yeah, no, he's my valet. And he's been with me for, I don't does he say 50 years? He says like a ridiculously long number of years. Yeah. <laughs> um, the guy's not that old. And it's very clear that by valet, that is that is Kingo's word for friend. And it's so tragic because it's really clear that this movie has the skills and the talent that they need to create human characters that the audience has no choice but to love. They do it with Dane and they do it with Karun, where for both of them, they talk for 30 seconds and you instantly love them. And the problem is that these are just side characters. And there's 10 Eternals who are tolerable at best. Like the one that I like best is Cersei. And as you were saying, like, I only barely like her. And that's who we're spent, supposed to spend all our time looking at. Dan and Karun should be the lead characters. And we could drop like three Eternals. I'm going to say like Sprite, Thena, and Makari. No regrets. It would need to be a different story, but that story could have been a good story instead yeah. of the one that we have. That's a trade-off I'd make it any day, every day. Absolutely. Yeah. So there are downers and they say Ajax has been killed and the Deviants are back and you need to come with us. And then we go to Australia to find Gilgamesh and Thena. And so once again, we got to deal with Thena. Gilgamesh is fun. He kind of hasn't. He's he's like this big bruiser guy, um, but who has been spending all of his time taking care of Thena, which is actually very sweet. Yeah. Through the first, you know, 50 minutes of the movie, we don't really see much of him other than, oh, he's the one that punches really hard. Yeah. And now that they actually give him something to do, it's like, oh, no, he's my favorite character now. Yeah, he's cute. Yeah, he's spending, you know, they've had 7,000 years to kind of just live and do do whatever. And some of them are, you know, living in the middle of nowhere. Some of them are becoming Bollywood stars, which right. is also very funny. 
but he's just listening to Merle Haggard and working on his culinary <laughs> skills. Like that's actually what I would do exactly if I yeah. was immortal. Yeah. And and also, and then he comes in and he brings jokes as well. So he they introduce him as like, oh, it's the greatest, the strongest, eternal. And then he opens the door and he has an apron on. Mm-hmm. Cersei tells Gilgamesh that she's been trying to talk to Arishim and she can't do it. And Gilgamesh gives very movie advice, which is, well, maybe just don't try so hard. Which apparently hadn't occurred to her to like not try. And so then she does. And then this is this sequence is the one where Cersei finds out. Because here's Arishem. Now Cersei is talking to the Arishem, the prime celestial. And so many things happen. Arishem, giant red robot looking dude with six light bulbs for a face who hangs majestically in a nightmare void full of darkness and cosmic mist. His head and his upper torso are really oversized and his limbs look emaciated and scaly. He is horrible. He is a nightmare. And it absolutely indicates to the audience that the celestials are terrible and we should not have them. Cersei gives him the news about the earthquakes and the deviants and Ajax being dead. And Erisham says, it is a side effect of the emergence and it is time for you to learn the true purpose of your mission. So this is an enormous plot twist that is delivered by helicopter directly into the movie with no involvement from the main characters. They don't find any clues. They don't put any evidence together. They just have a bunch of aimless scenes. And then here comes Erisham parachuting into the movie to explain that everything that they know is a lie. Every billion years, new celestials must be born. I plant celestial seeds into host planets across the universe. The planet Earth was chosen to host the celestial Tiamat. In order to grow, a celestial needs vast amounts of energy from intelligent life. The deviants prevented this by consuming humans, but until the Eternals eliminated them. Now the human population of this planet has reached the required amount, and it is time for the emergence to begin. And we see this big hand come out of the Earth, all this music, and then we watch the Earth crack and explode because it's an egg, leaving this huge asshole celestial standing there. And Cersei points out, everybody on Earth will die. And Erisham says, the end of one life, Cersei, is the beginning of another. That's how it goes. That's how it goes. Yeah. And the end by the end of one life, I mean the end of like 7 billion lives. Our universe is a constant exchange of energy, an infinite cycle of creation and destruction. Celestials use energy gathered from host planets to create suns, generating gravity, heat, and light for new galaxies to form. Now, look, I don't know what the Celestials think that they're doing, but I'm pretty sure our universe could make the sun. Like, that feels like a thing we've been able to do for a while. It feels to me like first the Celestials are trying to take credit for human civilization, and then the Celestials roll up like drunk Kanye at the VMAs. And they're like, yo, universe, I'm really happy for you. I'm going to let you finish. (laughs) But we made the sun. Kanye, this is not okay. This is not acceptable. I don't care that you're a huge cosmic robot with lights on your face. You did not make the sun. We got to get into this. I created the Deviant, Cersei, for the same purpose that I created you. It's like, what? You said the Deviants, you said they were a problem. Every celestial host planet has its own predators. I first sent the Deviants to exterminate them so intelligent life could grow. But there was a flaw in their design. Oh, you don't say, huh? They evolved and became predators themselves. Yeah, because eating the predators is predatory. And I lost control of them. What? This is just straight up. This is babble. Like, it's such a misreading of evolution. Like, they're saying that mammals 
are the only route to intelligent life, which is not the case. So they show the deviants like I sent the deviants to kill the dinosaurs. In the real world, the reptiles would have become intelligent eventually if the meteor hadn't hit and killed them all. But in this universe, like Erisham probably delayed the emergence of sentient life by killing the dinosaurs. And then he has to start all over with the mammals, which is not necessary. Kanye, get off the fucking stage, dude. I built and programmed you Eternals to be synthetic beings and incapable of evolution to correct my mistake. Okay, my question. On every planet, though? Because you said the deviants, this is every planet. That you send the deviants to kill the the predators, and then you gotta create eternals to kill the deviants on every planet. How are you failing this hard? It also implies that there's a terrible Eternals movie on every other planet. <laughs> I know, yes. And this and this big apology of like, oh, I kind of I kind of screwed the so this is a thing that they've done countless times throughout all of time and space, and every single time they fucked it up and need to send in a cleanup crew. Well, with that trip to the lunatic villain monologue Hall of Fame, this is the end of Act 1 of Eternals. I'll be releasing Act 2 later this week, and here's what you can expect. And Icarus says, Cersei, I've missed you. I didn't want to leave. There's something I... And then he's whisked away by a flying monkey, which has to be one of the all-time history's greatest male relationship saves. We have to work hard for somebody else's benefit for the bare necessities in life. And so these rich people just can't even fathom that, like, no, somebody was taking advantage of them. There is, like, a multiverse of better movies that this movie could have been if they had only asked us. Why do they Why do they not ask Trevor? Why do they do it? You actually allow millions to die for billions to be born. But the thing is, we don't want these people to be making the decision. He's a Snyder bro. He's a Snyder bro. Icarus is a Snyder bro. That explains so much about this movie, actually. All right, I have chosen you to listen to that episode, so stay tuned for that. Thank you very much, Trevor. Thank you for having me, and uh, good news, the movie actually gets better from here. That's a bold thing to say. <laughs> I, we will find out whether that's true or not. I will meet you back here for Act 2 of Eternals on the Superheroes Everyday Podcast. Thanks for listening. so much for giving me a chance to win a VMA award. I... Yo, Taylor. I, I'm really happy for you. I'm gonna let you finish. But Beyonce had one of the best videos of all time. One of the best videos of 